Um, The reading today is taken from Mark 14, verses 12 to 26, page 1020 in Church Bibles, and page 1549 in the Large Print Bible. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Good morning, everyone. Thanks very much, Sally, for reading to us. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father in heaven, would you please guard our hearts and our minds this morning from distractions? Lord, as we come to your word, there's so many things that could occupy our minds and fill our minds. Lord, for this time, would you enable us to put those things to one side that we may focus upon what you have to say to us? Would you give us hearts that are willing and ready to respond and lives that will put into practice what you teach us this morning from your word. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the scene before us this morning is often referred to as the Last Supper. It's the last time that Jesus ate with his disciples before his betrayal, his arrest and his eventual death on the cross. And it's a scene that has probably provoked more artists to pick up their paintbrushes than any other scene in Bible history. And this is probably the most famous, painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And it captures that moment, the the faces of the disciples, when Jesus announced to them that one of them, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle would betray him. And you see the disciples there getting together in little groups of three, saying, Surely, Lord... Not me. And there's Judas pictured on the far left of the screen with the, with the green sash on. 
You see, we left last week in verse 10 and 11 of Mark chapter 14 with Judas on his way to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Have a look back at verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now having sold out Jesus, Judas is back with his disciples, meeting in this most intimate moment of fellowship around the table. Yet at the same time, he is waiting for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. But before we come to the conversation itself around the dinner table, it's important we understand the context, that we understand the meal that Jesus was eating here with his disciples. And just so we don't miss it, there's four references in just five verses. Have a look down at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Again in verse 14, say to the owner of the house, he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And again in verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. It is the Passover meal, and the Passover was the most significant date in the Jewish calendar. And so like every other household in Israel, in Jerusalem that night, as instructed in the law of Moses, Jesus was meeting to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. So in many ways, this was a pretty normal thing. This was happening in every single house across Israel. And we'll come back to the significance of the Passover later. But you see, in our account before us, Mark records two specific things that were unique to this meal that Jesus shared with his disciples that were not happening in any other home that night. And we're going to summarize them using two words. Firstly, corruption. And secondly, covenant. Because the first half of the conversation around the meal table in verse 18 to 21 is spent exposing the deep-seated betrayal and the corruption that resides within Judas's heart. And then in the second half, from verse 23 to 25, Jesus speaks of this new covenant, a new way of relating to God through his death and resurrection. But before we come to the covenant and the promise, we must spend a bit of time thinking about the corruption in Judas's heart. Have a look at verse 18. Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Talk about dropping a bombshell at a dinner party. You can imagine the awkward silence, can't you? Jesus is with his 12 best buddies, those who have walked with him, stood by him for three years of his ministry, those who've left everything to follow him. And just as they're tucking into their starter, Jesus turns to them and says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples are both saddened and surprised in verse 19. Saddened, yes, they should have been. Surprised, no, they shouldn't have been. 
If they'd understood what God's word has to teach us about the wickedness and the weakness of the human heart. Have a look at verse 19. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. You can almost imagine them, can't you, going round in a circle, one by one defending themselves. Peter, no doubt, first to speak. Surely, Lord, you don't mean me. James and John, surely, Lord, you're not referring to me. All the way around the circle till it comes to Judas, and you wonder whether he had the nerve, don't you? To say, surely, Jesus, you don't mean me. Yet moments later, he would walk out into the darkness and betray his so-called friend and master. And so just in case it wasn't clear, look at verse 20. Jesus presses home the point again. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And so they dip the bread covered with the bitter herbs into the bowl of fruit. It was part of the Passover meal. They did it to remind themselves of the bitterness of the slavery that God's people had faced in Egypt. So Jesus points them to the bitterness of betrayal. And he actually uses words here from Psalm 41 verse 9 where King David speaks of the bitterness of his own betrayal. It's on the screen, look. Even my close friend... Someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And so it is with Jesus, one of his so-called friends, who is dipping his bread into the bowl in this moment of intimate fellowship, has turned against him. One of his own inner circle. And the disciples may have been surprised, and it looks like they were, but Jesus certainly wasn't, verse 21. Why? Because this was the hour for which he came. Do you see that first part of verse 21? The Son of Man will go, just as it is written. Jesus said the Son of Man will go to his death. You can be sure of that, because it had already been written. Jesus knows exactly What is going to happen to him? Yet Judas, for his heart and for his actions, remains entirely culpable. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now as we stop this morning and think about the corruption within Judas's heart, I want to ask us a couple of application questions as we think about the commitment to Christ in our own hearts. And the first one is this. What was the heart of Judas's betrayal? What was it that led Judas to this deep-seated moment of betrayal? And do you know what the answer is? The answer is the love of money. Remember last week, the unnamed woman who poured out her pension fund in this gesture of devotion to Christ, 20,000 pounds worth of perfume, poured out every last drop on Jesus. Yet Judas, in contrast, betrayed his friend and master for a measly third of that sum, 30 silver coins. As Paul says in his letter to Timothy, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap 
and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Did you notice that the root of evil, a root of evil, isn't money? It's not money. It is the love of money. You see, money is a wonderful gift to his people that can be given and shared and used for the glory of God. But when we devote ourselves to money, when we build our lives around money, then the love of money is a very dangerous thing indeed. As Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 16, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so maybe this morning is a good time to check our own hearts in this area. The second question as we think about the corruption we see within Judas's heart is this. Are you a possessor of faith as well as a professor of faith? You see, for all the outward appearance of Judas, he was in reality, we see, exposed as a fraud. He was known as a disciple of Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was sent out by Jesus on that pioneering missionary journey in Matthew chapter 10. He saw demons submit at the name of Jesus. He was there when with three words, Jesus stilled a mighty storm. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him cleanse a leper. He heard the words of God from the very lips of Jesus. He looked every inch the genuine article. But in his heart, he didn't actually love Jesus. You see, Judas professed faith outwardly. He was happy being associated with Jesus for three years. But in reality, he did not possess genuine faith inwardly. As John Calvin said in his commentary, it is one thing to feel that God our maker supports us by his power, governs us by his providence, nourishes us by his goodness and attends us with all sorts of blessing. It is another thing to embrace the reconciliation offered us in Christ. You see, it is not enough to know about Jesus in our head. We are called to embrace him in our hearts, to trust him with our life and with our death. That's why the Apostle Paul in his letter, second letter to the Corinthians calls us to examine ourselves. Look, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You see, it is a good thing to examine our hearts and check that we have not forsaken our first love. And so you see, Judas remains before us in the scriptures today as a warning to the visible church, as a warning to us today to keep checking our hearts in terms of our loyalty and our devotion to the Lord Jesus. And so firstly, we're saddened. I hope you're saddened as you sit there and as we think about the corruption that we see in the heart of Judas. But secondly, friends, we must rejoice We must rejoice in the perfect commitment that Jesus shows to us and this covenant, this promise that he establishes with us and seals with his own blood at the cross. 
Have a look at verse 22 to 25, the second half of our conversation around the meal table that evening. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Remember the context for this meal. This is the Passover meal, a celebration of the Lord's rescue, deliverance of his people from Egypt, which you can read about back in the book of Exodus. And I would encourage you, if you've got time this afternoon, to go back and read at the very least Exodus chapter 12, because that chapter illuminates these few words that are before us this morning. But let me give you a brief summary, because without the context of Exodus, it's pretty hard to grasp the full worth of these words. So you see, God's people, Israel, had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, waiting for the promised deliverance. God had sent nine plagues already upon Egypt. And with each one, Moses, on God's behalf, had stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and said, let my people go, that they may worship me. And on each occasion, in the end, Pharaoh said, no, I will not let your people go. And so we come to the tenth and final plague, the plague of the firstborn. And God says to the people, this very night I will sweep through this land in judgment and strike down the firstborn in every single home. But wonderfully he makes provision for his people and he says to them, this is what you do, slaughter a lamb. A one-year-old lamb without defect and take its blood and splash it on the door frames of your house. And when the Lord visits this night in judgment, he will see the blood covering your house and he will pass over you in judgment. And so it happened. And that night there was wailing across the land of Egypt because any home that was not covered or marked by the blood of the lamb, there was a death of the firstborn. And so on that very night, God's people en masse left Egypt and the great exodus to the promised land began. And you see, for 1500 years since, God's people have celebrated that great rescue. And as they slaughtered their lamb at this Passover meal, they remembered, they recalled the events of that first Passover when God delivered his people from slavery. And so you see the scene is set, isn't it? In verse 17, this is the meal. They've celebrated it for 1,500 years. But in verse 22, the normal custom and sequence of events is broken. Because Jesus turns the attention away from Egypt and that first meal and that first rescue and he turns the attention to himself. Do you see it? Verse 22. This is my body, says Jesus. This is my blood, says Jesus. Verse 24. The bread and the wine, of course, are just symbols of Jesus' body, bread that was given for us and of his blood 
represented by the wine that was spilt for us. So on that very night when people were celebrating this supper all across Israel, Jesus himself steps forward and he points to himself and he says, I am the fulfillment of that great ceremony. You see, his point is a very simple one. The old Passover meal has been superseded by a new meal. Why? Because the old covenant has been superseded by a new covenant. That rescue from Egypt is about to be superseded by a new and more glorious rescue. Not just from slavery, but from sin itself. A rescue that comes through trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. And as so we journey with Jesus to the cross and the hour of his death. We'll see when we get to Mark chapter 15 on Good Friday itself that the judgment of God fell upon Jesus at the cross in order that it might pass over us. What wonderful assurance we have this morning in Christ. What wonderful assurance. I'd love you just to imagine for a moment that you're a little Jewish boy, 10, 11 years old, back on that that very night in Egypt. You're the firstborn in the home. You've heard all God's promises. You know what's about to happen that night. And as you get into bed, as your dad tucks you into bed that night, he senses an anxiety, a concern within your heart. And he says, son, are you okay? And you turn to me and say, dad, no. He says, I've had a bad day. Haven't read, haven't read the scriptures at all. I haven't prayed at all. I've been nasty to my sister. I've broken pretty much every single one of God's good commandments. And you know what? God's coming across this land in judgment tonight. Am I going to be okay, Dad? And his dad turns to him and smiles and says, yes, son. Because it doesn't matter about the day that you've had. What matters is that our house is marked by the blood of a lamb. And when the Lord comes this night in judgment, he will pass over our house. Of that you can be totally assured. Imagine how well that little boy slept that night. Knowing that his house and his life had been covered by the blood of another. And so the only question that I ask you this morning is this. Are you marked by the blood of Jesus this morning? Have you trusted in the substitutionary work of Jesus in your place? Because if you have, you are perfectly safe, perfectly secure. Your salvation, your assurance guaranteed, not because of your performance or the day you've had or the week you've had or the life that you've had, but because of the performance of another, the Lord Jesus on your behalf and his unwavering commitment to you. The covenant, the promise that he makes to us, which he sealed with his own blood at the cross. And so I ask you again, are you marked by the blood of the Lord Jesus this morning? Because in verse 22, the call is to is to come and to receive and to take hold of what Christ has already won for you. Look at those words again in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, take it. This is my body. Jesus stands before this world and says, It's done. My life is given. Will you embrace me? Will you take the life that is on offer? It's the language that we now use around the Lord's table, isn't it? To come and to receive and to take hold of what Christ has already done. You'll be familiar with these words. Come to the table, this table, not because you must, but because you may. Not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Come not because of any goodness of your own gives you a right to come, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. The call is to come and to take hold of what Christ has already done for you on the cross on your behalf. And my intention now in the last couple of minutes isn't to give you a full and complete understanding of the doctrine of the Lord's Supper and how it's practiced today but I do want to draw out a few principles in these verses which should help us as we think about the wonder of coming together and remembering all that Jesus has done and there's five directions that we need to look or we should be looking when we come together around the Lord's table firstly we come to look down into our own hearts Why did Jesus die? Die for sin. Whose sin did he die for? Die for mine. He died for yours. You see, that night Jesus ate with those who were about to abandon him in the hour of his greatest need. It is a meal for weak and wayward people like us. And it gives us the opportunity to look down into our own hearts And to acknowledge our sin and to say sorry to a wonderfully loving and forgiving God. So we look down. But we also look back to the historical and finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. That's why in Luke's gospel he also records these words. This is my body given for you. Do this. Keep doing this in remembrance of me. Why do we eat? We eat to remember Just as the Israelites ate the Passover to remember and to look back to that original rescue from slavery in Egypt, so we eat the Lord's Supper to remember, to cast our minds back to the finished and completed work of Jesus, which should flood our hearts with thankfulness. So we look down, we look back, but it's also a time to look forward with anticipation to the coming of God's kingdom. Verse 25, have a look down. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus points us forward to the day when the wine will be flowing in the world to come. So it's not just a time of healthy looking down and somber reflection in our own hearts and across. It is a joyful celebration of what awaits the great feast, the banquet in heaven of which we will be a part and of which the Lord's Supper is just the faintest taste of that communion that we will share around Christ on that final day. And fourthly, it's a time to look around. This is the one I think we often fail to remember today 
Do you see, do you notice the context for the, for the wine and the bread? It, it's supper. It is a time together of fellowship, of community. You see, the Lord's Supper isn't just a private moment between me and God, but something that we are called to enjoy and celebrate in communion to get community together as the body of Christ. That's why when Paul writes to the Corinthians to correct the abuse of the Lord's Supper, he uses these words, look. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What's the reference to the body of Christ? It's us. We are the body of Christ. You see, Paul's point is a simple one. Don't be divided and at war with people out there and then come together and share in a superficial unity around the Lord's table. If you are divided with people, other brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've got squabbles, then get together, meet, talk, pray. Be honest, be vulnerable, come together, say sorry, forgive one another, and then we come to the Lord's table, don't we? As a wonderful expression of that shared forgiveness of which we are all in need. It is something that we do in community together, so it is vertical, the Lord's Supper. It's doing business with God. But it's also got a horizontal dimension because we do it corporately as a community of believers. And then lastly, the call to look up to Jesus. Because it's all about him. His body, his blood, his life, his death, his resurrection, his glory and his kingdom to come. So, friends, as we draw things to a close, let not one day go past in your lives. However busy you might be, however absorbed in the things of work and family, let not one day slip by without stopping, pushing those things to one side and standing once again at the foot of the cross and saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you. Because however broken and corrupt and weak our hearts may be, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all our sin. And however much we waver in our commitment to Jesus, he will never waver in his commitment to us. And if you ever need convincing of that, then just go back to the cross and remember the promise of God Almighty, which he sealed with the blood of his own son for us there. So let me leave you for a moment, then we're going to sing our final song as you ponder your commitment to Jesus in your own heart, but maybe more importantly as you ponder Jesus' wonderful commitment to you.